Descaladiata and House of Floppies and Pancakes. <laughs> it's true. It is. I have a, I have a tall stack of yeah. pancakes and floppies. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a floppy extravaganza um, here at Shea Fruit. Uh, I've been um, hacking a lot more on floppy stuff. I'm kind of getting a little like, especially today, I got a little bit like into the rat hole of uh, floppy disk formats. Um, we also did a bunch of board designs, um, but why don't you want to show the videos to get people spun yeah, up? Yeah, so let's uh -huh. get you caught up to where we're at with our progress of making it so uh, anyone can be an archivist for low cost. Um, microcontrollers can now do this, and one of our goals is any type of removable media just shows up as a USB drive, drag and drop things off of it in the usual easy Adafruit way, and, uh, you know get all that stuff that's rotting away in the basements and attics um, online so folks can learn from it and share. So here's the two videos that we did today. We'll play these back to back and then we'll see you on the other side. Related, what is this? This is, um, I did find one single DOS formatted five and a quarter floppy and this is my five and a quarter drive, clunk. It's wired up to my feather with my floppy feather wing running my uh, Grease Weasel emulation mode. And what I got working was Flux Engine. So um, Flux Engine is another uh, software that can um, read uh, floppy disk drives uh, with Flux data and then parse it out. And um, I did get this working earlier and I just wanna quickly show, this is what was on it. Uh, this is the image that I'm you know, uh, opening up on my computer. So it's got all that mouse stuff that you're probably used to if you had a Windows computer running DOS back in the day. And um, this is Flux Engine if you're interested in it. It's kind of a cool open source Flux reader. And this is the pull request that hopefully I'll be able to get merged in soon. Related, what is this? You spin me right round, baby, right round, like a floppy disk. Okay, so I've got my five and a quarter floppy disks. Not a good singer, good engineer. Got my five and a quarter drive wired up to my Feather, and I'm now running the mass storage demo um, for Teeny USB, which means that this is actually showing up as a 360K uh, double density drive. I had to refactor a little bit here uh, so you can tell it, hey, for the MFM decoding, you're expecting 360, but here's the good news. It just shows up as a drive, and if you're like, hey, I wanna know what's in this readme.txt, it's a mouse driver for you know an old IBM PC, but it shows up just like a disk drive. This is a good example of why you can't just use a USB floppy disk because there's no such thing as a 360K IBM USB floppy drive. But now there is. Okay. Okay, so um, started off by um, getting Flux Engine support for um, the Adafruit floppy grease weasel example. So Flux Engine is, is a piece of software that runs on a computer that talks to the hardware and gets the Flux data and then can convert it to, um, to the format that, you know, just decode the format for you. And we did Grease Weasel a couple of weeks ago. Grease Weasel is a Python version and Flux Engine is in C and they both have slightly different functionality. So it's good to have both supported. Um, the only difference is that um, Flux Engine, again, is written in C, so it's kind of like low-level Windows 32 file access and, like, learned a lot about, like, the differences between um, how Python does COM file format reading and the way that um, C does it, but whatever. 
Um, I did I did get it working in the end and um, even fixed a bug in, in Flux Engine. So um, that's the good news. And um, once I got Flux Engine working, um, I was like, well, I can try reading the five and a quarter inch drive because I only had Commodore 64 inch, Commodore 64 fl- formatted five and a quarter inch floppies and like a couple Apple IIs. And Grease Weasel can't read Apple IIs format or C64, but Flux Engine can. And so I was like, well, once I get that working, I can start reading these disks. And then I actually was like, I found one disk that said like mouse driver. And it turned out, I was like, well, you know what? Like that's that sounds like it's a, probably an IBM PC DOS disk. And uh, lo and behold, it was. So I was able to use that as an example for um, 360K floppy. So you saw in the video, um, we updated our MFM decoding to also support not just high density, which is what you usually use for three and a half inch, but for five and a quarter, usually you have it's usually double density or like sometimes it's high density, but it seems like a double density is quite popular. So that means that um, half as many tracks, half as many sectors. So like the the square of flux that you read is like just that much larger. Basically, it's like two times, four times larger, two times on each side. Um, so you have to refactor a little bit to know like okay, the timing has doubled, the number of sectors have, the number of tracks is halved, or you have to like double. You have to double step through the tracks or whatever. Um, so, sorry, the drive itself is is only 40 tracks. So every time you step, you're only stepping. You're, you alternate what normally would be 80 tracks, like you interleave them. Anyways, so I got that working. And so, um, yeah, the mass storage stuff just worked. It's funny is it doesn't show up in the, with a floppy disk icon because... Um, Windows has a special thing that's like, oh, did your, the disk is the, the mass storage device you just plugged in, you know, 1.44 um, megabytes. Okay, I'm going to assume it's a floppy disk, but if it's any other size, it doesn't give you the cute floppy icon. It's a little bit of a shame. And, and we have to call it mass storage even though it's not. Yeah, it's mass storage. <laughs> it's not sauce. It's, it, well, it's the mass storage format. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, the, all, dis, all MFM, IBM diskettes use the same, you know, there's, there's, you know, 40 or 80 tracks, there's nine or 18 sectors, and each sector is 512 bytes, and it's FAT12, so it just shows up on the computer. Um, and then I got into the Commodore 64 disks, and the Commodore 64 is, like, really messed up um, compared to MFM. Um, MFM is weird, but at least it's, like, each sector has the same number of bytes on it, right? You're, like, there's nothing funky going on, whereas Commodore 64 and early Apple disks you know, the engineers there, you know, looked at, you know, basically a circular format and were like, well, you know, it's like toroidal. It's like it's it's like a donut. And so there's more data you can store on the outer rim of the disk than the inner rim. And so there's different numbers of sectors um, depending on what part of the disk you're reading on the Commodore 64, which which yeah, at least it spins at the same speed. Thank God. Right. But it does. It does have slightly different amount of sectors. And so. That is um, really exciting, um, and it's also GCR, not MFM. Um, so I'm, I'm still, you know, I'm getting, I am am getting data read from the drive into the Commodore 64 format. The problem is, is that the diskettes I have, you know, half of them are commercial games and, you know, like commercial programs, and those disks actually read pretty cleanly because they were like manufactured with like a really strong writer and then in a factory, and it's like they're really well made. Um, and they only had one thing only written on them, so there isn't like competing, you know, old flux that maybe not cleared off. The other disks that are like user disks have like, you know, files and, and code on them. Um, 
in like, you know, user programs, but because they were written on a diskette drive, they don't read very well. Like a lot of them have um, a lot of sector failures. So, you know, I can read them, but I haven't, I haven't gotten one clean read. Whereas, you know, I have a copy of like, there's a copy of like Top Gun game and Jeopardy game and like, you know, track and field something, something. And those actually almost all read very cleanly. Like I can get all the, all the data out and it passes the CRC checks. But I, st I can't quite get it loaded into an emulator and it's like unclear why and it's like there's copy protection and then you can read like a G64 file, but then how do you convert to that? And it's like I'm in this, I'm in like a, a place, you know, where I, I don't really know enough about this. Um, yeah, I think, I think also I might have to tweak a little bit of the, the index pulse reading. Um, to make sure it's like either it's falling or it's rising. I think it's important, you know, with MFM, it was like, it, bullshit, who cares? Like, as long as they sort of say, here's sort of where the index track is, but for the copy protection stuff, you need to really be very precise about where the index falls and rises on the, um, on the flux reads. So, um, yeah, I'm reading the data, but again, I can't actually load an emulator. And I think maybe it's because of the copy protection or something. So, um, or maybe I'm just like not doing it right. So that's that. So that's that's the just get stuff. So um, it's good news. Um, I do think you know I I need to revise the floppy feather wing to add level shifting. Um, I can really get away with it until um, this five and a quarter. But the five and a quarter it does work. But I had to add a pull up on the index line. Um, it really. Um, you need to drive those inputs very hard, and my controller is not really good at it. So I think, you know, I should put level shifting on it anyways to protect in case something goes in all out wrong. You know, you don't want um, you don't want any like leaked current from the five volt line coming in. Um, but also, I think I need to drive those um, open drains a little harder than I expected, and have like some pretty strong pull ups. So you know, put some big pull ups, have an open drain uh, shifter and um or buffer and uh, so i'm going to revise the the floppy feather wing uh shortly but if anybody here who's watching happens to be an expert not in the commodore 64 but in commodore 64 g64 file format generation from cryoflux or scp files <laughs> types uh do comment um because i i, I have I have like this thing and I have to convert to another thing and it's like not clear how exactly you get from one to the other. And I, I want to, I really want to use this, this open source uh, tool chain as much as possible. And I, I really, really do not want to start writing Commerce 64 file format generators. I mean, I can do it, but like I, I got a lot of other things on my plate. <laughs> um, speaking of stuff on my plate, I also designed a couple boards. So first up, the Feather... Um, ESP, sorry, the Feather ESP32V2. So we got these, I did a little video, which we don't have, but we got these Pico modules. If people really want, I can go and maybe grab one. I don't think I have them here. But the, the Pico module, um, which we talked about last week, is an ESP32, the original ESP32, not the S2, not the C3, not the S3, that has... Um, Eight megabytes of flash and two megabytes of PSRAM built in, and um, it's on the chip itself, which is why I used it in the Cutie Pie design. But they also made a little module version, and the module is actually smaller than I thought, um, which kind of inspired me to finish up this Feather ESP32 revision. And the reason um, 
I needed to revise it is because the CP2104 is no longer available, being replaced with the CP2102, which has this a slightly different schematic um, for use. And it's like, if you're going to revise, if you need to add like two resistors to design, you might as well redesign the whole damn thing, right? Because if you're going to redo it, and you need a new stencil, you need a new PCB, it's like, here's a good opportunity to just go in and, and just clean the heck out of it. So um, I did a complete uh, revision. Let's do front. Um, so I did a complete revision. So this is the Pico module here. And it is, it's a bit of a, let me see if I can turn on TDocu to show this a little bit better. Hold on. Where is, okay, there you go. Um, so this is the module. And I put a stem QT, like a vertical style over here. And then um, I put a NeoPixel. The old ESP32 doesn't have a NeoPixel. And I'm using pin zero and pin two, which are like unconnected. But you know, as long as they're outputs, it's fine. I'm using them to control the NeoPixel and the power um, for the, uh, there's a little power regulator for the um, I squared C and for the NeoPixel. There's an extra user button. There's like one input remaining at the end. Um, so that's an input button. So you have a user button and then um, updated to USB-C up here and uh, you know just tweak this now this can be a cp2102 or cp2104 um and i you know because the module is much smaller than the room i got to put a little bit more um capacitance on the board um these pads are a lot bigger now i had to kind of make them skinny because of the the room module was like right up against the edge of the um the pads i did have to change a couple pins around because of the ps ram usage the ESP32 Pico actually has slightly different pins available than the ESP32 room. It's not a big deal. The only pins that got changed were like the UART pins and the, the I think mostly MISO changed and I think SCL SDA changed. All the numbered pins up here did not change and the analog pins didn't change. So, you know, if you have to recompile your code, but if you recompile the code, um, even if you, as long as you use like the word SDA or SCL, not just like pin six or whatever, or GPIO eight. Um, it should be just fine. I think it's worth it. I mean, this is going to have double the flash and two megabytes of PS RAM. And I think, I think that's a worthy, um, update. And, um, it's still like a double sided board, seven, seven rules. So I'm, I'm pretty happy with this design and, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be very compact. It's a good refresh of the, um, ESP 32 feather, very popular feather, but like, you know, I always thought, like, I don't really like that the module was so big. So when the Pico is, came out, um, I think it's been out for a bit, but I sort of, like, didn't notice. Um, it's it's a lovely little update to, to the board, so I'm happy about that. So that's that. And then um, the other board that I designed was a little uh, game player for the Cutie Pie. So um, it's got, you know, the, the D-pad buttons here and then A and B buttons here. And then there's actually four buttons over here. And I thought maybe I could, especially for the ESP32 um, and S3 Cutie Pie, maybe I could get the um, uh, Odroid Go, like emulation library example code working. Um, I thought that'd be really cool for it to, uh, to work on this. And on the back, um, there's a little socket that you would plug in. This is like a two by nine and another two by nine header. And you see it fits quite nicely right between the, 
mounting holes, and this is a cutie pie with a USB sticking out. And then um, there's a micro SD card slot for games, on off switch, battery, um, which kind of like goes over the whole back, um, a display, and um, a AW9523 GPIO expander, a really low cost expander that um, handles all the pins, handles the backlight, um, because it has an LED driver that's really nice, and handles like the card detect pin. You know, basically everything that isn't like the TFT, SPI, and analog output, like all the all the extra stuff. And, um, you know, by using the expander, actually, I have a lot, you know, I have two pins extra left over on the cutie pie. So you think, like, how many GPIO is 11? That's so little. But you can actually get away with 11 if you have an expander to take care of your um, user interface buttons. So the only thing that I was kind of, like, not sure about is should I go with a speaker or headphone and I ended up going with a little headphone output um, and I'm using A0 and A1 those are the the DAC pins on most boards uh, although you can do also do high-speed PWM and then amplifying it out into um, the headphone so I think you could get you know maybe better audio than a little speaker because I feel like I could do a speaker but it'd be so small and then it's like I don't know I sort of felt like usually I do a little speaker but I thought this time maybe I would do um, a headphone that could that could be a little bit more fun because then it could be something in your pocket. And most people have headphones with them all the time for your phone or for your MP3 player or whatever. Um, so yeah, so that's that's the design. And so the great search is going to be for that headphone amp because that's what I had to source this week. So I don't know if there's. Do you want to do questions or you want to do them? Let's the, do the great search. Okay. So great search brought to you by Edward and DigiKey. Every single week, Lady Ada uses her power of engineering to show you how to use digikey.com search. This week, the great search is... It's a capless stereo headphone amp that's very small, right? I want to, want to optimize for board size on this design. So let's go to the computer and I'll show the schematic. So for my design, um, I've got... Let's see. I've got my board, and it has audio out. In this case, I only have audio on A0, but I'm going I'm to change that in design. There you go. Um, so audio output, and I want it to drive uh, stereo headphone output. And um, I want to have like a nice little amplifier. And um, the thing that was most important for me is I wanted a design that was capless. And what that means is um, if you look here... Uh, there is no DC block. Usually there's like 100 or 200 microfarad uh, amp uh, capacitors on the output of the amplifier into the headphone. And that's because like you don't want to have any DC signal um, going in. Normally a class A or class AB has a, or you know, even class D, whatever, they have a DC offset, right? Usually you're, you have your ground and then your audio signal is above it going up and down, there's that DC offset. But you don't want that DC offset going into your speaker because it'll damage it. And so usually have like big ass blocking caps um, that allow for the 16 or eight or 32 ohm load um, and doesn't like diminish the, spec uh, the frequency response. Um, but you'll notice here, there aren't any. And th for the design I'm doing, it has to be so tiny. You know, it, the whole thing is so small, it, one capacitor would fit like here. It would be just way too big. I wanted something that 
you know, audio goes in, maybe there's a couple of resistors and capacitors just for like, you know, by, you know, just getting the signal in and um, doing the um, uh, volume gain select. But for the most part, I don't want those like big chunky caps because even ceramic ones, they're just way too big or tantalum, they're just too big. So this is a no cap um, headphone amp design. And the way it works is if you notice here, you're like, oh, what's this? There's a switch cap um, uh, um, converter. Ooh, can't remember the name of the, not a boost converter. It's like a um, inverter basically. and allows it to generate a negative voltage um, by using a switch cap. And that way, um, this signal that comes out here is referenced uh, to a negative voltage as well as the positive voltage, you know, from the four volt to three volt power, it's generating a negative rail so that the output is right um, centered through ground, which is like super cool. You're gonna pay a little bit more, but usually these amplifiers are quite nice in general. So let's go to DigiKey. And I'm going to search for headphone amp. Okay. And um, there's a whole bunch of stuff, but basically you want the, um, you know, the, the linear amplifiers. And uh, so I'm going to go with, I only want the active designs because I want to manufacture this. I want normally stocking. Now, it might not be in stock right now because of the chip shortage, but like something that I can probably get in the next few weeks. I also notice, by the way, a lot of chips are sort of coming into stock in the next few weeks. So if you've been waiting on something, um, and then uh, I'm going to exclude uh, marketplace products. Okay, and for the first pass here, so like, let's say like, oh wow, here's one for 60 cents. Let's take a look at it. So when you open this up, you'll notice this design doesn't have um, the capless. It was like, oh, hey, you need, you need some big ass capacitors on the output uh, to, to remove the DC offset. So we don't want to use this. So that's, that's no good. And, and there's no like, Thing you can signal uh, filter from that'll signal that it's capless um, although sometimes they have it's called like direct drive or like no cap you know there's sometimes names for it, but pretty much you just have to look at every data sheet real fast and just they'll let you know very quickly um, that said the size is very important for me too and so um, I definitely want only surface mount there's only one that wasn't surface mount and I don't want a big-ass package. Like, 8SOIC or TSOP is going to be too big. It needs to be TDFN or QFN or TQFN. Those are the only ones that are going to fit. So um, I'm going to select only the packages that I think are going to fit. So DFNs. I don't like BGA, so I'm going to skip those. No TSOPs. Um, more QFNs, QFNs, QFNs. I think no more than 24. Like that's at the max anyways. Okay, next up, I'm just going to check the voltage supply. You know, I'm running it off of three to six volts. So um, three to five volts. So I definitely can't run it off of the this 1.8, 1.95 uh, volt version. Not going to happen. Okay, so we only have like 19 options. So that's, that's much better. Um, so I went through these, and there's, a, there's actually only a couple different families available. Um, but when I sorted by price, um, there were a few that weren't in stock. The 488 was the one that needed the, um, 
the amplifier, sorry, the, uh, the capacitors on the output. And so the first one that was available that was in stock <laughs> and also uh, had the, um, no capacitors required was the Max 9724. This looks like a really um, nice amplifier. It's got depop, it's got shutdown, it's adjustable gain, you know, and it's like basically 60 cents when you buy it in quantity. So um, this was the part that I picked. So I have some on order. And uh, maybe by next week, if I get the um, the PCBs in, uh, we can hear how it sounds. And hopefully it sounds pretty good. But um, I like this. It's a nice little headphone amplifier. I think this is, I'll probably use this in a couple other designs as well. It's very simple, but I really like that it has that uh, negative voltage rail generator inside. And this week is a special treat. Yeah. For the great search, we're gonna play a DigiKey 1991 promotional video. It's amazing. To, since we're doing all this retro stuff, I know. Let's check it out. All right, put the floppy in the drive. It started in 1972. An idea, a new concept in distribution. Today, DigiKey Corporation represents one of the fastest growing electronic component distributors in the United States. At DigiKey, Service is the key. The success of this effort depends on a team of talents, employees, management, and staff committed to making DigiKey the best. In its first 10 years, DigiKey's marketing efforts were focused on the electronic hobbyist. Then, in 1982, they began targeting catalog mailings to the commercial market. Okay, and uh, let's get to some questions and okay. then we're going to bounce. You ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, question with the ESP32. Is our refresh being V2? Will it have to have a separate Arduino listing since there's a small amount of changes? Just curious on how that works. Yeah, I need to do another board variant, but like Espresso is really chill about it. Um, I submit board variants all the time, and they just they pull them in as long as there's nothing like super weird in them. Um, so yeah, there would be a new board definition because, again, some of the, some pins were not available on the Peco um, module. They just aren't brought out. They're used in the, for the PSRAM interfacing. And so I had to re... like. It's one of those things, like, if you're going to change, if you're going to add one resistor to a design, you have to redesign the whole board. If you change one pin, you might as well change as much as you want, because it's like any change is going to require um, a new variant file. Okay. Uh, on one of the other shows, you talked about ESP32, Itsy Bitsy introduction. Will it be able to bring out all the pins? Uh, the other Itsy Bitsy, I know, will have an antenna workaround, like the other 32U4 version do not. Well, you'll, you'll have the antenna at the end. I mean, I kind of drafted it out, but you know, it's surprising. The, the ESP32 does not have as many pins as you'd think. A lot of them are input only, and so like they're kind of restricted. Um, and there's a lot of strapping pins, and I don't like to expose those because if you happen to connect something to those pins, it could kind of like make your boot up weird um, or your bootloader not work. And so um, for the itsy bitsy design, you know, it, the pins aren't named the exact same thing because, like, pin 8 doesn't exist on the ESP32 or, like, pin 9 or whatever, pin 6. There's a couple that just don't exist. Um, and there's no pin remapping on the Espressive Core either. So, like, you know, in Arduino, uh, on the original, you know, there, there's a remapping. Like, on the SAMD21 and 751, pin 3 is in, it can be, like, PA14 or it can be, like, PB3 or whatever. It's mapped inside the Arduino IDE. Espressif doesn't do that. So like GPIO4 is always pin four. It always has the same functionality. There's no, you know, map 
table that converts pin to pin, which is, you know, it's all right. Um, I kind of wish that folks would do remapping because it, it's like one table lookup thing. It doesn't add a lot of um, slowdown and gives people a lot more flexibility in like having pin compatibility between formats. It's one of the things I like about the cutie pie is it doesn't have any numbered pins. It only has named pins. Um, it's like A0 through A3 and then SDA, SCL, RT, uh, RX, TX, you know, and the SPI pins and the power pins. So there's no, there's no pin numbers that could ever like trip you up. Um, it would be probably kind of, you know, if I could go back in time, I would probably change Arduino to only have named pins and no numbered pins. Um, we, we solved that in CircuitPython um, because I really didn't like, you know, I, I knew that this was going to be a problem, but I can't go back uh, to fix Arduino. Just kind of how it is. All right. And that is our show for tonight. We'll see everybody during the week. Thank you. On uh, Tuesday, we have JP's uh, product pick. Wednesday, we have Show & Tell on Ask an Engineer, and also 3D Hangouts with Noam Pedro. And then Thursday, JP's Workshop, and Friday, we have Deep Dive with Scott. We'll have videos all throughout the week. Monday is a holiday. It's Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It's a day of service, so our team is taking the day off. So if you place an order, make sure you know that it will not be shipping until Tuesday. There's also a little bit of weather going on. I'm looking out the window right now. It's a little uh, snow dusting, but it's not too bad. And please continue to stay safe, everyone. We are almost through this wave. Uh, I've been telling our team that this wave is collapsing. Um, right or wrong, um, the way we got through it, uh, folks got vaccinated. Folks are testing positive, but it's not affecting them, really. Um, at least that's what seems to be happening around here in New York. And everyone's ready to get back to uh, their lives and more. So just uh, hang tight. And I uh, hope to see some of you in person real soon. Thanks for the support. Thanks for the orders. And I'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.